Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing eliminating fears. This is chapter 18 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. I titled this chapter, Eliminating Fears. Are you really scared? The reason why is because as we dive into today's content, what you'll probably start to understand is that you're really not scared at all. You really actually have craving, which is this poison that we talk about so much, this craving, this greed, this desire, this attachment, where the mind is holding on and has a tendency to hold on to things. And this holding on of the mind causes us all kinds of problems, untold amount of problems. And what you're going to realize as we get talking today is that you're not actually really scared. You don't actually really have these fears. What you have is this problem of craving and training the mind away from that. You can actually confront these fears and let them go so that you can then move on and actually realize a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, the enlightened mind. So let's talk about this more. The goal in Gautama Buddha's teachings is to move the mind towards enlightenment and ultimately attain enlightenment, moving through the four jhanas, moving through the four stages of enlightenment till eventually attaining enlightenment. And in order to do this, we need to learn and practice many aspects of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And as part of his teachings, we learn about the discontent mind, about how the mind has painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And essentially these feelings of anger and frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, uh, happiness, excitement, elation, loneliness, boredom, shyness, resentment, all of these feelings are aspects or symptoms of a discontent mind. It's craving, desire, attachment, or this mental longing with a strong eagerness that is causing the mind to be discontent. Essentially, we are causing it ourselves because we have this longing with a strong eagerness to acquire something or to hold on to something. And the mind craves permanence. It's uncomfortable with change. It's uncomfortable with impermanence. So this unenlightened mind will hold on to thoughts and ideas and perceptions and it holds on to fears. It holds on to certain experiences that we've either had ourselves, that other people tell us about, that we've heard about, 
essentially our mind is conditioned to have certain fears. And as we go through life, these fears inhibit us from all kinds of different opportunities and positive things, very wholesome things that could be beneficial for our life. And because of these fears, it holds us back from realizing the enlightened mind where it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So in order to reach to enlightenment, we need to eliminate fear. We can't hold on to fear, even the smallest little fear to the biggest fear, even just a simple fear of spiders or snakes or uh, anything like this, or even something bigger. A lot of people kind of consider the fear of death as being perhaps maybe one of the largest fears that we have. And one of the things that's motivating this fear and creating this fear is not only craving, because that's what's creating the mind to hold on to these fears, but one of the things that we talked about in our last session, which is the self or the personal existence view. This self that gets carried around in the mind that isn't really truly there. It's not a permanent, never changing self, but this concept of a self that we hold in the mind actually because of the self, there are a lot of fears because if we think there's an actual true self, then that self can become discontent and it can fear death because the self is trying to hold on. Another thing that can cause fear is an unknowing of true reality or that third poison of delusion or ignorance, unknowing of true reality. Because what happens is the mind doesn't understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. Essentially what gamma is, is the result of our decisions, either wholesome or unwholesome. If we don't know about this natural law and we're unaware of it, then we can kind of mistakenly fear things that don't need to be feared. If we understand the natural law of gamma, it's one of the best ways to start to erode some of these fears because unwholesome things can only happen to us if we're causing harm in the world. If we're causing harm, then harm will come to us. So oftentimes fears are based around harm and harm to the self. That's what I was kind of mentioning earlier. If we're unknowing of true reality of this natural law of gamma, and we think that certain things can just happen to us and kind of generate this erroneous fear, and then that fear that's being generated affects the self, and now we feel like we're gonna somehow lose our life or be injured, and somehow thinking that these fears that are causing the mind to be discontent, we actually start to kind of neurotically cause problems in our life through anxieties and things like this. And oftentimes fears can even move into hatred and people can start have ill will or have hatred or have anger toward particular groups or certain situations or certain beings because of their fears. So fears just cause a mountain of problems. And oftentimes the way that we deal with fear in the unenlightened state is we kind of just avoid those fears. We just kind of have aversion, that second poison 
of craving, anger, and ignorance, that second poison that we also call hatred or sometimes refer to as aversion, when we have fear, we oftentimes kind of push them to the back corner of the mind and just hope that we never encounter these situations or these people or certain things that we're afraid of. And we just hope that we never come across them and we kind of avoid them, we kind of ignore them. But then when they crop up and we're in that situation, there can be a massive amount of fear which comes with anxiety and a lot of other problems. And we can start making irrational decisions which causes more problems and causes significant issues at that particular moment. So in order to really fully experience the enlightened mind, we can't just push these fears to the back corner of our mind and ignore them or avoid them. We need to actually confront them and we need to approach them and we need to essentially eliminate them from the mind. So of course, some of the solutions are some of the same solutions that you've heard before, which are breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. This helps to take care of the craving, right? That first poison of craving, desire, attachment, a mental longing with a strong eagerness and the mind's tendency to hold on. So breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity are going to help to train that. Then if these fears are producing hatred or anger or ill will or aversion towards any particular groups or any particular things, then loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness will help with that. And then, of course, with this third poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, the more you learn about the Buddhist teachings and the wholesome decisions that you can make in your life through the Four Noble Truths, through the Eightfold Path, through the Five Precepts and all the other teachings, awakening the mind to the natural law of gamma, you start to build this wisdom that starts to erode this poison of ignorance or delusion or unknowing of true reality. But even still, with all of those, there's kind of some special things that I can share with you that will help you to eliminate fear from the mind because these things alone won't typically eliminate fear from the mind. And that's why this chapter shows up kind of later in the book, is chapter 18, because you need to kind of have this background of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts. You, have, you need to understand the natural law of gamma. You need to understand the ego because the ego and the self can create a lot of fears. You need to understand a lot of these other things before we actually get to a real, true, direct remedy for fear. What I suggest for any fears that you're having or that you are aware of that you have is that you take note of those fears and you know what those fears are and then you confront those fears. The way that you do this, the way that you train the mind to let go of whatever it's fearing is not only the things we've already mentioned, but you actually confront the fear. So let me give you an example. Let's just say I'm afraid of dogs, okay? And I'm just deathly afraid of dogs because either I was bitten as a child or my sister was bitten or I just saw a lot of news about dogs attacking people and this has conditioned my mind to fear dogs. Or maybe even one of my relatives, maybe my mom, my dad, one of my relatives fears dogs 
And when I was around them growing up, every time we were around dogs, they were afraid of the dog and they kind of pulled me away and it conditioned my mind to be afraid of dogs. Maybe I've never even had a negative experience with a dog before. I may not have even ever really seen a dog before perhaps, but the mind can be conditioned to actually fear something in this way from other people's interactions, things that you hear, things that people tell you, or of course from your own experiences. So what you need to do in order to let this conditioning go is you need to put the mind in that situation where it's confronting the fear and train it to realize there's nothing to actually be afraid of. So in this example, as if my mind has been conditioned either from myself, from things that I've heard, or people around me to fear dogs, then what I need to do to uncondition my mind is to actually go around dogs and see that dogs can be friendly, they can be loving, they can be warm, they can be gentle, and this isn't going to happen in just one experience with a dog because typically if someone's got a fear, it's something they've been holding on to for a really long period of time. So I'm going to need to take repeated trips to be around dogs to maybe the first time all I can do is kind of look at the dogs in a dog park that are behind a fence and I need to stay 10 or 20 feet or meters away from the dogs. And maybe that's all I can do is just kind of bring myself to a particular area where dogs congregate and that's enough. And I just do that for 10 minutes or 20 minutes and that's enough for that particular visit. And now my anxiety has gone down a little bit because I see dogs, I see them playing, I see them interacting, I see children in there playing with them, and it starts to kind of erode this fear and uncondition the mind. And then maybe on the next visit, I need to go a little bit closer to the fence and actually observe the dogs and kind of see them a lot closer up. And then maybe on a third visit, maybe I need to kind of reach over the fence and try to kind of pet them a little bit. Maybe bring them a snack and let them have some food. And maybe I'm too afraid to kind of hand it to them with my hand. Maybe I just drop it on the floor over the fence. And then maybe on a next visit, a fourth or fifth visit, now I kind of let them eat it out of my hand over the fence. And now maybe on a next visit, you know, I kind of go into there and I don't want to touch them. I don't want to look at them. Maybe I'm still a little bit scared, but I'm just in their same presence. And then maybe on a next visit, I go into the dog park and I start walking around and I sit down and I let a dog come up and actually smell me or lick me or something like this. I think you can see how this story unfolds is that you gradually train the mind, move it in the direction of not being fearful what you're essentially doing is you're replacing that conditioning that created the fear with wholesome experiences that undo the fear. And this one with dogs is kind of a nice example. And, and maybe for a particular person, a dog park is too much. Maybe there's too many dogs. Maybe they need to do it kind of like on a one-on-one -on -one basis with one dog that's really well-trained, that's leashed, that the owner understands that there's fear and can kind of, you know, be understanding to kind of help the person gradually release that fear and then graduate up to a dog park. So there's not just one way of doing it aside from gradually, slowly unconditioning the mind 
putting it in a situation where it realizes that there's really nothing to be fearful here whatsoever because if you're not doing anything harmful, no harm is going to come to you. So in that situation where I go to the dog park, I haven't done anything harmful. I've just shown up. I've gone to the fence. I've maybe walked in. I haven't kicked a dog. I haven't talked bad to it. I haven't stepped on a dog. I haven't done anything aggressive. So if we understand this natural law of gamma, this through the Four Noble Truths, through the Eightfold Path, through the Five Precepts, which are all explaining the natural law of gamma and the things that we can potentially do to make wholesome decisions and unwholesome decisions, if we understand that Eightfold Path and we're practicing that Eightfold Path, then in those situations, there's nothing we're doing that's causing harm. So therefore, no harm is going to come to us. So this is just one example with a dog. But the same thing can be applied. For example, I had a student one time that was part of a learning institution that she was a person who preferred same-sex relationships. And this learning institution found out about that. And they actually kicked her out of the school. They found a way through kind of maneuvering and kind of setting up her her testing situations where they could actually discriminate against her and kind of kick her out of the school. Well, she went to court and over many, many months, she was able to essentially get the legal system to work in her favor. And she was admitted back into the school because she had already paid for her education. But in doing so, she had experienced so much discrimination and had so many months of kind of harassment and opportunity for her mind to just mull over all the problems that when it got to the point where it was the day for her to go back to school, she was feeling more and more anxious about this. And one of the things that I helped her with is, you know, about a week before she went back, what I suggested to her was rather than just show up that day where she was supposed to go back with a lot of anxiety, I share with her, you know, why don't you drive to the school park in the parking lot, see how you feel. And then once you get there, just sit in the car and just kind of breathe and just kind of relax. Whatever feelings come to mind, just let those arise in the car, in a safe place where you always have the option to leave if you need to, and just let the feelings arise and let them go back down. And then if you feel comfortable, get out of the car and then take the next step, which is kind of like walk on the campus and then if you're feeling like too many feelings arising sit down on a bench and just relax and kind of breathe and just know that you're not doing anything wrong and kind of replace those unfortunate thoughts those harmful thoughts that got held on to in the mind about this school release those thoughts through just being in the environment and breathing and realizing that you haven't done anything wrong. Just focus on the breath, just like you would in meditation, but do that kind of real time in the situation. And then over multiple experiences, she ended up building up to the point where she could actually go in some of the buildings, talk to some of the teachers, some of the administrators. And at one point she even came in contact with two or three of the staff members that were part of the discrimination and kind of executed it all. 
And she slowly, gradually built up to that to the point where she felt comfortable re-engaging in the school and attending classes. Well, if she wouldn't have done this and she wouldn't have unconditioned her mind and trained away these fears and she would have just showed up on the first day, she probably would have been very apprehensive, maybe heart palpitations, maybe sweating and whatever was going on in her classes, she probably wouldn't have been taking in the information and it would have been hard for her to learn for the first couple of weeks. And then she would have potentially failed her test for real and really actually got thrown out of the school for real legitimate reasons for inadequate grades. So by her training her mind, not allowing this fear to just sit there in the background and ignore it, by confronting it, she was able to release this fear and then ultimately go on and perform well in the school and have good, healthy relationships with her administrators, with her teachers, with her other students, uh, her co-students. So this is how you can confront fears and eliminate them so that they don't disturb you in daily life. But it's all related back to the same three poisons. It's still the craving, which is holding on to this conditioning. And we need to eliminate that through breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity, which oftentimes these fears produce hatred and aversion. And we start ignoring these fears. And then because of our lack of understanding or the delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, we don't understand the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts or the Natural Law of Gamma in the unenlightened state, even somebody who's not learning these teachings. And we kind of push these fears to the back and we ignore them. And then they come out always at the wrong time when all things can just kind of come crashing down on us. So it's better to confront these things and address them so that you can uncondition the mind by replacing these fears with good, wholesome experiences that shows the mind and trains the mind that there's really nothing to fear whatsoever. The whole saying, you know, there's nothing to fear but fear itself, it's really quite true because there really is nothing to fear. It's just that the mind has been conditioned to do so. And it's our goal as part of this practice to undo that conditioning, let go of those thoughts so that we can then reside with a mind that's in the middle, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So what I would like to do is pause for a moment, see what questions that you guys have. In fact, if you would like to or ask the question about certain fears you have, and you would like to kind of get a certain examples of how you can undo the conditioning, go ahead and mention your fears that you're having, or at least one or two of them. And then Max, our moderator, can introduce those into the discussion. And I can give you some advice on some potential steps that you might take in order to eliminate these fears. So Max, do we have any questions from anybody? Yes, so Amina and I were just exchanging messages about our fears and Amina mentioned mice, as in rodents, and uh, she asked, how can I confront this fear of mice? Yeah, so, you know, first of all, the first thing to keep in mind is mice are more scared of you than you are of the mice, right? This goes for pretty much all animals, whether it's even things like snakes and scorpions, 
you know, pretty much all animals will run away from a human being. Unless we're talking about like real vicious animals that sometimes like a lion or a tiger that will literally attack a human being uh, in certain situations. But most animals are going to run in fear as soon as they either hear, see, or smell a human being. So oftentimes we are afraid of animals, but they're much more afraid of us than we are of them. So recognize that first. And also recognize that a mouse has no ability to hurt you whatsoever. Um, it doesn't have big, huge fangs. It doesn't have big claws that are going to somehow hurt you. So there's nothing there to actually harm you. So these two things are important to understand. Then once you understand these things, what you need to do is actually go around some mice. And I'm not saying that you need to pick them up and kiss on them and love them necessarily on a first visit or two, but go into some pet stores that have some mice and some gerbils and things that look like mice um, and be around them and see that they're just normal beings just like everyone else. They're animals and that they're not actually going to hurt you. And you need to do this over multiple experiences until the mind feels comfortable. And if you can build up to the point where one of those pet stores might allow you to hold one in, in your hand, allow it to walk on you, although it's gonna feel very awkward and you might still be scared when you're doing it. And you may need to do that multiple times before the mind feels calm and content. That's what you need to do in order to eliminate this fear. This is one of the reasons why I talk about how, yes, meditation is a very important part of our practice to attain enlightenment, but there's so much more beyond just meditation that we need to do. And here, this is a perfect example of how you can see that, of how to release these fears, you know, going into a pet store and spending time with mice over multiple experiences, that's beyond meditation, but that's what you're going to need to do in order to really release this fear and know that you released it and replace this fear that you have with good experiences around, for example, mice. I know a lot of people have very ingrained fears of certain animals, so spiders, snakes, and in those cases, it seems very, very deeply rooted. I was wondering, where do those kinds of fears come from? Because often it's not necessarily that they've ever you know, been bitten by a snake or by a spider. So what's going on there? It's definitely the mind's been conditioned in some way, either a personal experience that you've had, personal experiences you've seen with other people, things that people have said to you. It could be movies. Sometimes when we watch movies or things like this, they can condition the mind to be afraid. But every snake that I've ever seen and I used to be afraid of snakes at one time, but every snake that I've ever seen has always run away from me. Um, I've never had a snake come and, and attack me, but yet snakes are one of the biggest things that people are afraid of. And it's from our conditioning that you know snakes have this poison and yes, they can be deadly, but you know snakes are, are going to run from you. And if they feel the vibration of you coming, you know they're going to take off. If they smell you or anything like this, they're going to take off. They're not vicious attack animals. One of the other things as we're talking about animals to understand is what Gautama Buddha said about all beings, 
essentially because we've had so many countless lives in our past that we've been essentially countless animals in our past even now that we're human we've already been countless animals and if you ever see your past lives you may kind of observe this for yourself but one of the things that he talked about is because we've had so many countless lives he said it would be impossible for us to encounter a being today that hasn't previously been our mother our father our brother our sister or some other relative so one of the ways as you're building up for example to eliminate fear of mice or snakes or any animals that you may be encountering is recognize that these are essentially your relatives you know at some point in your past these animals have been your brother sister mother grandmother father what have you and there's really no need to fear animals whatsoever you know things like lions and tigers and bears and things like this they will typically run you know i think lions and tigers are a little bit different because they're a little bit more predatorial than things like a bear for example but with good decision making good discernment you're never going to find yourself in a situation where you're with wild tigers or wild lions so you don't have to fear that situation because you're never going to be in that situation with making good decisions that's one of the things to keep in mind with animals that these are all our relatives essentially i know that some of the thai forest monks like to go off into the deep forest to meditate often by themselves often at mm -hmm. night and one of the reasons for that is because it is kind of dangerous and it mm -hmm. is scary so they are trying to overcome fears but would that not be an example of putting themselves directly in harm's way and and in that case if they did encounter a poisonous snake or something would the fear not be useful potentially to help them stay safe not fear because fear actually doesn't help us be safe for example right. uh, if we encounter a snake and we're afraid of a snake and we just happen upon it and we have fear and then our fear and anxiety and everything else kind of goes bonkers we can make irrational decisions that put us in a a more life-threatening situation than if we see the snake we just acknowledge it and we just steer clear of it with a calm mind and make clear rational decisions we can actually turn out better with a clear rational mind so fear actually doesn't improve our chances of safety to me it actually diminishes them and yes you know i've talked with monks that in their younger years one particular monk that i know he became a novice at age eight he went to the temple stayed there until 10 then he went home from 10 to 12 and then he went back at 12 and kind of has been a monk his whole life and he mentioned to me that his master took him out in the forest uh, very early and this was you know probably 40 years ago when in thailand even now in thailand we have tigers in the the forest we have lots of poisonous species we have wild elephants we have all kinds of things in our forest here in thailand that he went out and would meditate in the forest at nighttime and sleep there and camp in the forest overnight for multiple nights at a time and he kept being scared and to be in that situation and his master 
teacher just kept telling him to meditate and focus on the breath and also to do loving kindness meditation in order to help eliminate this fear that he had. And essentially what you learn in those situations is as long as you're not doing any harm, no harm is going to come to you. But see, the mind hears that little crackle in the forest and it just happens to be dark and the mind can't see what that crackle is and it instantly becomes fearful because there's a self there. And because the mind is unknowing of this natural law, you have to be in enough situations where you see I'm not causing harm, therefore no harm is going to come to me. I'm not causing harm, therefore no harm's coming to me. And you do that repeatedly in the forest and it starts confirming for you how this natural law is 100% truth because every time you go into the forest, you're not doing anything harmful and no harm comes to you. Because the natural law of gravity, we can see it, right? Like we can see the natural law of gravity, but a lot of times people have trouble seeing the natural law of gamma. And this is one of the reasons in the book I try to make it so clear. But one of the ways to awaken the mind to the natural law of gamma is when you understand the natural law of gamma, that it's cause and effect, action, result. Essentially, if you're causing harm, harm will come to you. If you're not causing harm, no harm will come to you. One of the ways to train the mind to see that so very clearly is to put yourself in situations like that where you're going into the forest. There's lots of harmful beings around that could harm you if they chose, but by you going into the forest repeated times and not causing harm, no harm comes to you. And this helps you to see and reinforce that this natural law of gamma is so 100% true that it's unmistakable. So that's how people use the natural law of gamma to train the mind not to be fearful because there's really nothing to fear unless you're causing harm in the world. Thanks, yeah, that makes a lot of sense about how fear is never really for the best because of it. today we talk about the fight or flight response, for mm -hmm. example. So mm -hmm. you know, from a point of view of karma, neither of those are ideal. Okay, so we fight the thing that we're scared of. Well, then we're doing harm, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, through the fight or flight response, it's like, it's like being intoxicated. There's no real uh, mindful decision-making going on there. It's just reflex. And so then if we panic and run out of fear, we're just conditioning the fear. And that's why we have these fears is because, yes. you know, in the past, we, we've kind of encountered these things over and over again, potentially. And we've conditioned this fear. And this is one of the reasons why the fears hold on so much, right? Because we already have this problem in the unenlightened mind of craving, desire, attachment, where the mind has this tendency to hold on. So we have that already in place that's holding on to the conditioning and the fear. But then oftentimes when people are confronted with their fear, they oftentimes will retreat and run from it and go the opposite direction. And that kind of reinforces the holding on to this fear. So what I'm sharing is in order to reverse that, is that rather than running from the fear, like avoiding mice in Amina's case, or avoiding dogs or avoiding darkness, if you're afraid of the dark or whatever it is, and always making sure you have the lights on so you're never afraid, because we know impermanence that you can't ever not be in the dark, that someday you're going to be in the dark. You can't always be in the light uh, in terms of 
lighted environments. So because of impermanence, you are going to be fearful at some point. And at that moment, your mind's going to be highly discontent. So rather than retreat, which encourages the holding on to this fear, what I'm suggesting is confront it by putting the mind in the situation that it's fearful of. You know, for example, you know, in the dark, you know, my son was afraid of the dark and I recognized this about a year and a half ago and I slowly started training him to be comfortable to be in the dark. And it took, you know, probably little three minute sessions here and there over the course of about two months. But I would just do kind of like twice or three times a week over the course of two months and he eventually got to the point where he eliminated the fear of the dark, realizing that there's really nothing to be afraid of whatsoever. And we need to confront these fears, not just let them linger and push them in the back of the mind, because the mind's just gonna hold on to them and you're going to be discontent because of them at some point. Got it, thanks David. So I can see we have a question from Tio, whose hand is up, so the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, we talk about the mind, and also I want to know a little bit about mindfulness. When we argue with someone, and sometimes you just can control your mind, that means you don't have, like, you're not mindfulness person. If you're arguing with somebody, yes, part of it is not practicing right mindfulness. Part of it is not practicing right effort, which is taking the effort to eliminate these unwholesome qualities in the mind. Part of it is having this poison of hatred or anger or ill will. Part of it is craving to be right, right? That's usually why we argue is we wanna prove that we're right. Part of it is the ego. The ego wants to be proven right. Part of it is the self, right? The self-identity, the self-image. This is why some arguments can just be so fierce and people can just go and go and go and go. And this is why some arguments even erupt into murder, right? We have people that actually murder other people over a simple argument. And that's because there's so many things involved in the mind that's producing this argument. And it's never beneficial to argue. Never, ever, ever. If you're feeling the mind becoming unraveled or you're feeling heated or you're feeling anger starting to arise, there's just no reason to raise the voice, be hostile, be aggressive, and try to exert your will for somebody else to know that what you're saying is correct. There's no winning an argument. There's just no way of doing that. So it's better just to not even allow it to get to that point. And if you see somebody else and they're starting to be come argumentative, it's better to just de-escalate it. And if that means walking away, then walk away if you have to, or if you need to move your mind into a better environment where you're not feeling the desire to argue, especially early on when you first start learning and practicing, you might start feeling the mind still pull towards the argument and wanting to argue or wanting to be proven right. And as you develop your practice more and more, you won't even have that desire. You won't even have that feeling to argue. But as you're in the process of training and, and evolving, you may find it's better to just get up and walk away from an argument rather than keeping the mind in that environment where it's more likely to react to the situation. And until the mind becomes more 
solid, more established and stronger where it can actually sit there and someone can argue and you can just smile or say nothing, you know, sometimes the best answer is just to get up and walk away. Thank you. Okay, we have a question from Madnal. I think we can probably all relate to this on some level. She asks, I actually have an awful fear of speaking in public or in front of people. It is personally very deep set and debilitating. And I've related it back to a time in my youth where my thoughts were routinely invalidated. I just feel on fear that what I might say is really not anything of value. I can feel the anxiety and fear rise up and I usually shy away. Yeah, this is a common one. I think um, I didn't look before our talk today, but I think public speaking is one of the common fears. I think snakes are a big one, spiders, mice, I think you're probably in there for Amina. These are some of the really common fears in the public. And in order for you to get over this fear of public speaking, you need to take a gradual approach to it. And maybe it is that you prepare a five or 10 minute talk and you do it on your own at home, just by yourself. And then you do it at home in front of a mirror. Then you do it at home with one really supportive friend that you know will be nothing but supportive, you know, family member or friend and do it just in front of them. And then maybe you add two or three people to that. And then maybe you do a YouTube video and create it that way. Or maybe you take it into a larger audience, but gradually moving the mind in the direction of replacing these experiences where you felt invalidated with good, wholesome experiences of people that will be supportive so that you can eliminate not only the public speaking fear, but there's probably some shyness there too, which is another common one that people oftentimes have is they become very shy based on their fears. So do this gradually over time, just like the mind needs to gradually awaken to enlightenment. It needs to gradually eliminate certain cravings. It needs to gradually eliminate this holding on to these fearful situations that we are holding on to, this conditioning that we hold on to that is really just the mind holding on. You're really not scared at all. What you'll realize is it's just conditioning. It's just thoughts, ideas, perceptions, experiences from the past, things that the mind's been conditioned to. And when you let go of those things and you train the mind to let go, you'll realize that you're not really scared at all. It can actually be quite enjoyable. And if you have more than one fear, I suggest you take the one that is the least first and do this technique that I'm suggesting, which is kind of a gradual training. Work on that one first. And then when you get some success and you feel good about it, start applying that same technique to all your other fears, working towards building confidence to address maybe your biggest fear, which for some people might be the fear of death or the fear of heights or something like this. So address some of your smaller fears first. A question from Uma. She asks, I fear to be alone in the dark since I'm always surrounded by many people. How to overcome it? Yeah, this is another one. So what you need to do is gradually train the mind. So put yourself in a situation where you have somebody that you feel that you can trust 
and that supports you and go into an environment and be with that one person and have them turn off the lights and you able to sit there with this person and maybe you hold their hand, maybe you sit close together and this is kind of your first experience and maybe the lights only go off for 30 seconds or a minute and then they come back on. And then you're in the light for three minutes, five minutes, and then you turn them off for a little bit longer. And maybe your friend sits a little bit away from you, maybe doesn't hold your hand, but you know that they're in the room with you. And then that time expands more and more. And then maybe what happens is you turn off the lights and your friends in the room and you turn them off for as long as you feel comfortable with. And then you turn them back on. And then maybe they step right outside the room and they're outside the door and you turn off the lights, go for a period of time and turn them back on. And gradually over multiple sessions, you train the mind that see, there's nothing to fear here. Every time the lights go off, nothing bad happens to me. Everything's fine. I'm just as fine with the lights on and just as fine with the lights off. And eventually you've got to build up to the point where you can do this completely alone with nobody around you over multiple sessions, multiple situations where it's just you in the dark. And perhaps you even just meditate while you're in the dark. And this is going to gradually train the mind that there's nothing to fear in the dark. We have a question from Jaroslav. He asks, could you perhaps elaborate on fear of death and why we should not be afraid of death? Or how about fear of getting sick? Okay, so the fear of death often comes from people not knowing what's next, right? People fear what's going to happen to them when they die, or they fear like a painful death right? Or they fear leaving their loved ones or, or these kind of things. There's multiple different reasons why people can potentially fear death and getting in touch with why you're fearing death. Is it because you don't know what's next? You don't know if you have done what you need to do in order to experience something good after death? Is it that you fear leaving your loved ones? You know, what is it that you're really fearing about death? Because that will pinpoint for you what you need to do to actually work on eliminating this fear of death. I can tell you that there's really nothing to fear about death because we're all going to die. None of us are ever going to get out of here alive. We're all going to die. If your fear of death is not knowing what's next, I think one of the things that can really help with that is the more that you understand the Buddhist teachings and you practice them and you see the condition of the mind improving, how the Buddhist teachings are 100% truth, then at some point you may observe your past lives and you start understanding the cycle of rebirth, or you may end up practicing these teachings so well and seeing the improvements on your life so well and improvements on your mind that you just kind of take the Buddha at his word about this cycle of rebirth and you just know that this is the process of what happens is the cycle of rebirth and the more you learn and practice these teachings now death kind of becomes something that you're not necessarily controlling but you actually have some decision making ability over right because some traditions essentially tell us to just believe 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 we try to figure out what all the answers are, 
but yet we're still left with this impression that we're somehow going to be judged at the end of this life and we're either going to go to a good place or a bad place and that's our only life and we're only going to get that one opportunity and we're going to be ultimately judged and this can produce a lot of fear for people but if you understand the cycle of rebirth and you understand that your good wholesome decisions in this life are leading to a better and better existence in this life and you see the condition of the mind improving better and better then it's almost like you have some control or ability to determine what's going to happen at death in terms of will you have attained nibbana before death will you have attained enlightenment before death which means you're going to experience a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So you're going to know that you've attained enlightenment. And whatever comes after death is got to be wonderful. If there's something after death, we don't really know once someone's attained enlightenment, what happens after death. But what the Buddha is doing through his teachings is not only teaching you how to awaken the mind now and experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, but essentially what happens to you at death is totally in your hands. It's not based on judgment of somebody judging you of everything you've done and trying to determine whether you go to a good place or a bad place, but it's you actually making the decision right now in every single moment in the present moment. Do I do wholesome things or do I do unwholesome things? And every single moment by you making more and more wholesome decisions, you're essentially taking control over whether you ever attain enlightenment in this life and ultimately what happens to you at death. And I think that can be very empowering for us as human beings, especially if we're brought up in a tradition where we think that we have to fear this supreme being who's going to ultimately make decisions of whether we were a good or bad person and judge us. Essentially, some traditions have fear cooked into them. And the Buddhist teachings never do that. He never uses fear in order to motivate people to learn and practice his teachings. And he essentially puts the control or ability, the determination in your hands. What are you going to do? Here's the path. Here's what happens to you. If you don't attain enlightenment, you will be reborn. If you haven't reached the first stage of enlightenment or higher, you are going to be reborn into one of the lower realms, probably the animal realm or the afflicted spirits realm, or depending on where you're at, perhaps into the realm of hell. But if you're learning and practicing these teachings and you get to that first stage of enlightenment or the second stage of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn back into the human realm. And if you get to the third stage of enlightenment, you will be reborn into the heavenly realm and hopefully attain enlightenment there. But you may end up coming back to one of the other realms. Or if you get ultimate enlightenment, the Arahant actually really, truly enlightened, then you won't be reborn at all. So he tells you exactly what's going to happen. And none of it is based on fear. None of it is based on judgment of somebody judging you. And this is why in these teachings, we don't judge each other. We don't compare ourselves to each other. And we don't have fear 
of what's going to happen next because we already know what's going to happen. And it's 100% in our ability. And we're able to determine that through our own learning and our own practice. We have 100% decision-making authority over what happens to us as we go forward in this life and potentially future lives. We have a question from Bill. On page 205, you talk about maintaining the mind in the present moment when our mind wants to relive old or familiar anxieties. I'm dealing with an anxiety that I haven't had to deal with in quite some time. It's regarding financial insecurity and making sure I have enough money to extend my visa here in Thailand. I find myself worrying about the exchange rate and checking it several times during the day. Lately, the Thai baht has been strengthening, and so I'm finding myself anxious about when is the best time to transfer money to have enough to satisfy immigration requirements, as well as enough to cover my basic needs. I guess my question is, how do I keep my mind in the present moment throughout the day? Okay, there's multiple things that we can talk about here, Bill. Of course, you probably already know that it's the craving the mental longing with a strong eagerness to stay in Thailand that is causing the mind to be discontent. Again, whether that's good or bad, that's not what the Buddha is teaching, but it's just that mental longing with a strong eagerness holding on to Thailand tightly that is causing the mind to be discontent. Whereas if you get to a point where you think about, you know what, if I live in Thailand, that's great, that's wonderful, that's what I would prefer to do, but if I don't, that's okay too. I'll find my way in life and everything will be just fine. I'll, I'll work it out. So you have to get the mind to be comfortable with either situation. Even though you have your certain preference, you have your goal, you have your objective, you have your interest to live in Thailand, you need to accept that if someday you can't live in Thailand, then you'll be okay with that too. Okay, so that's an important thing to come to realize. The next thing is, is in terms of worry, worry is another symptom of a discontent mind. A worried mind sees the problem. It sees the problem and it becomes worried and it's discontent. So a worried mind sees the problem and it's discontent. But there's also something called a concerned mind. A concerned mind can see the problem, but it can also see the solution to the problem. And in that situation, the mind can be content because it sees the solution. So what you have to ask yourself is, are you worried truly just because you see the problem and that's all you see is the problem? Or are you really not worried? You're just telling yourself you're worried and you think you're worried, but you're really not because you actually see the solution, which is transferring certain money at a certain time and making sure that you have the appropriate money given the right time should I actually get your visa. So if you can move your worry into concern where you see the problem, but you also see the solution, then that can help you. So if you're feeling your mind pulling to see the exchange rate multiple times throughout the day, you're going to have to train it in the opposite direction. You're going to need to get it to the point where maybe you look at it once a day. And then once you get past that, 
look at it once every two or three days, look at it once every four or five days. You have to gradually train the mind just like you were maybe eliminating alcohol or caffeine or some other craving, this craving to look at the exchange rate on such multiple occasions, you have to gradually move the mind away from that. And your willpower is really the only thing that can do it, applying right effort to actually do it and stick to it. And if you relapse, for example, and you've gone two or three days without looking at it, and then on the third day, you look at it 10 times a day, just realize, okay, well, let me just stay focused on the goal. So these are the three things is first of all, this is precipitated by craving because of the craving to stay in Thailand. The second part of it is moving the mind from a worried mind to concern because it's normal to have concerns and work toward a certain goal. But that's a person who sees the solutions and who actively makes good decisions to implement good solutions. But then the third thing in the more direct way of training the mind is as you feel the mind pulling to look at the exchange rate is, you know, go away from it. You know, even if you have to lock up your computer, lock up your phone, you know, don't walk past the exchange rate place. If you're walking past places that have exchange rates, whatever it is, you know, you need to just avoid looking at the exchange rate by applying the right effort to do that. And only you can actually do that. Thanks, Davis. Just a follow up for me as well. So we have a situation globally at the moment where it's probably among the most worrisome time for people when it comes to money. It'd be hard to find a single person not in some way affected by pandemic and the economy. So what is some general advice you can offer to everybody, myself included, to help us deal with the uncertainty of the global economy and our own situations? One of the things that motivates the fears in these kind of situations is people think that when all of this stuff starts crashing, that somehow we're not going to be able to potentially survive, right? Like we're going to run out of food. We're going to run out of water. We're not going to have shelter. We're going to be on the street, these kind of things. There's all these cravings, right, that the mind holds on to that it wants this certain job. It wants a certain lifestyle. It has certain things that it's become accustomed to. And the mind is uncomfortable with this impermanence that maybe I can't go get two or three coffees a day, or maybe I I have to cancel that gym membership, or maybe I, I need to cancel Netflix and just go without that for a few months. And that's just what I need to do to get by. But what happens is the mind gets so comfortable in the situation that we might be in and it doesn't want to relinquish these things and the mind has to understand impermanence that it needs to let go of certain things in order to get to a point where it can be more content and if that means cutting back our lifestyle which means it will cut back our expenses in order to just to sustain life you know looking at just the five basic things that we truly need to sustain life food water shelter clothing and medical care that's truly all we need and i've been in situations in the past where and even in the recent past where i've had challenges with money and i always come to these five things and i just shrink everything else down 
and just focus on those five things. And, you know, even a year, year and a half ago when my money was really low, not only just shrinking to these five things, but within each of these categories, shrinking that as well. So going from, you know, more elaborate meals to more basic and simple meals, just very minimal food and realize that this is impermanent and realize that we just need to do this for a period of time. And once we get through it, then on the other side, we can build up our income and build up more substantial living and lifestyle like we did before. And realizing that at one time in your life, maybe you had less uh, income and you built up your life to wherever it was before COVID and now COVID hit and maybe you need to drop your lifestyle back down. And then after COVID and the economy picks up, you just pick it back up again and, and you build it back up the same way you did before. And this is okay, right? What happens is the mind has so much dislike. It's so displeased with impermanence that any little bit of impermanence, it really shakes the mind. Well, here with COVID, what happened is a lot of impermanence, big time impermanence. People are staying home. They're not seeing their friends. They're not going to work. Their income's been affected. They can't go to the same restaurants anymore. Some people can't even go to parks. They can't do a lot of things. And there's just so much impermanence that those first few weeks of quarantine and sheltering in place a lot of people had a lot of trouble with that. And it's because the mind is uncomfortable with impermanence. So right now, wherever you are, whether you're unemployed, whether you're having challenges with income or whatever it is, just understand that that situation is impermanent and understand that you have the complete ability to make good, wholesome decisions to bring yourself out of that. So rather than just be a victim to this virus rather than be a victim to all the decisions that other people are making around you. Look at how you can make really good, wholesome decisions to bring yourself through this experience and beyond and grow through making good, wholesome decisions. You have a hundred percent ability to do that. We're not just subjected to what's happening to us and around us we can actually make good, wholesome decisions. For example, some people recognizing this whole COVID thing and now they're more at home, some people are using that time to kind of retool and reskill because now a lot of education is online. You know, if you've lost your job or you're at a situation where you feel your skills are getting outdated and you could potentially use your, lose your job, use this time inside to retool and build up some knowledge in some new areas with online training that you can now get better and better jobs in the online marketplace and use it as an opportunity to do that. So what an enlightened being is going to do is rather than see all these situations and things that are happening around them and kind of shutting down and feeling like the world is bearing upon them, and kind of shut down mentally and physically, what an enlightened being is gonna do is kind of look at the situation and look for solutions. This is the concerned person. You're gonna look for solutions. 
okay, let's take inventory of this. I can't go outside. My job is a labor job. I can't actually go do this job. I'm inside for a long time. Let me find solutions of how I can retool and build up my experience so that I can get a job. That might be one approach, but you have to always be looking for solutions and look for active decisions that you can be making on a daily basis that move you in a direction of improved existence, improved lifestyle, that you can continue to make better and better decisions and move in that direction. Look for solutions for yourself. Don't fall victim to the mind just shutting down and thinking that there's no way out of this and that you just have to shut down. That's not gonna be helpful for you. Thanks a lot, David. Yeah, very helpful. And and see it as an opportunity to you know, see where we had maybe been getting involved in some unwholesome habits that we can now shake off, that we're having to shake off as a result of having less income, probably. I mean, I know in my case, uh, not being able to go to the gym, you'd think, oh no, I can't go to the gym, but actually that had become an attachment. So I was taking it probably too far. And now I'm able to find more of a middle where I'm exercising just enough, but it's not an obsession. So using it as an opportunity to shake off some unwholesome attachments. Yeah, I mean, uh, that that's a good point, you know, but always looking for solutions, always looking for how you can improve the situation through active decision making. We all have free will. We all have free will. That's next week's topic, chapter 19, talking about free will. We all have the ability to make active decisions day by day that improve our existence. And that's what you need to do. There's no need to fear what might happen to you or not having food or not having shelter. I mean, honestly, if everything went completely bad and I needed to go live in a tent somewhere out in the middle of a rice field, I'd be like, okay, let's do it. Like, that's just where I need to be right now. And that wouldn't be so bad. And just, okay, it will just be peaceful, calm, serene, and content in this tent. And we know that situation's impermanent because we can always make active decisions to improve the situation. So this whole situation with COVID, if the mind has craving and it's holding on and it thinks that this is permanent and it doesn't recognize this whole situation is impermanent, not just the virus, not just the lockdown, not just the income, not just the loss of job, but when we feel like the world's bearing down on us and we're kind of feel trapped and stuck, we don't recognize that, hold on, hold on a second, this whole thing is impermanent. I can start making good decisions to completely move this airplane from a downward spiral to flying in the air again. You know, I can do that. I have the ability to do that. And if you recognize you have free will and you recognize that everything is impermanent, not only the good situations are impermanent, but the bad situations are impermanent too. You can improve those as well. And if you understand the natural law of gamma and that you can use that to your advantage to practice right view, right intention, right speech, right action all the way through, then you can just constantly be making better and better decisions to improve your life from potentially a nosedive to soaring in the air again. And how much time it takes to right the ship, that's all yet to be determined, right? And that's where the mind also gets displeased because we want to have it all figured out. 
as soon as we see the ship sinking or the plane taking a nosedive, we want to know with 100% certainty this airplane is going to be flying, you know, perfectly well within two months or within one month. The mind wants to latch onto that. It's not comfortable with the uncertainty that, yeah, you might have to eat ramen noodles for six months or you might have to eat spaghetti for three months or you might have to just have, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a while. And that's just what it's going to take for you to get through this. And that's okay. You're going to be okay. You know, and if you start recognizing that there's people in this world that, you know, eat one meal a week or one meal a month and they're surviving in that way, not ideal conditions, of course. And it'd be great if the entire world didn't have that. But you're not going to be in that situation, most likely. And it's just going to take time and very good decisions. And you're not going to know when that airplane's going to come out of its nosedive. And that's okay. But just stay focused on the goal and keep making good decisions each day to bring it out of that nosedive. Great. Thanks, David. I think a lot of people benefit from that. So, okay, question from Biplob. Sir, I have a fear about some past unwholesome karma, like killing animals or killing of insects. Can the natural law of karma, can it punish, punish me in this life? So the natural law of karma, there's nobody administering it. There's nobody sitting over it, judging you. There's nobody hitting a button to like make things that happened in your past to come back and hurt you. The big thing with killing animals is that it comes from the part of the mind that has hatred or ill will, right? And it also comes from the other poisons as well, you know, delusion, not realizing that this is causing bad things for us and craving as well to actually kill the animal or whatever. But essentially, if you've killed insects or you've killed animals, those things are in the past. You don't have to be fearful of that. For example, I worked on a farm when I was uh, growing up at the age of 17 and 18, and I, I killed lots of goats and sheep and different animals as part of working on the farm. I never liked it, and I, I shook a lot when I did it, and I really didn't like it, and eventually ended up leaving. But essentially what that ends up doing through killing, actively, intentionally killing animals, is it produces a mind that is also comfortable with being hostile to other people, for example. So just because I've killed animals when I was 17 or 18 years old, intentionally doing so, doesn't mean that now just all of a sudden, miraculously, something bad is going to happen to me and it's just going to come out of the blue and hit me. That's not the way gamma works. During that time frame of my life, and I was working on that farm and killing animals, it was a pretty hostile environment because all of us were doing that kind of work and there were fights and there were problems amongst the various workers and that was the gamma. But once I left that situation and got away from it, the gamma improved through a good wholesome decision of leaving that environment. So you're not going to be in a situation where you're, it's just going to hit you out of the blue. Another thing about gamma that I would like to share with you, this is part of the Buddha's talking about gamma. He talked about a lump of salt. He described this lump of salt as like unwholesome activities. Okay. And this lump of salt was unwholesome activities. And he said, you know, if somebody has a glass of water 
and they take this lump of salt and they plop it in the glass of water, the glass of water is essentially undrinkable, right? And the glass of water represents all the wholesome activities that someone might do. So this lump of salt is the unwholesome activities. This glass of water is the wholesome activities. And if you put that lump of salt in this glass of water, then it becomes undrinkable because the water is so salty. It's so miserable. It's so horrible. And then he says, okay, there's this whole river of water, meaning there's this whole river of wholesome decisions that somebody has made. And now that same lump of salt goes into this river. Is the water in the river undrinkable? And the answer is no, of course not. So the idea is, is that when I was a child at the age of 17 or 18 or, or becoming an adult, I was making a lot of unwholesome decisions in terms of what I was involved in. At that time, you know, 15, 16, I was drinking alcohol. I was using a little bit of drugs. I was doing different things. I was killing animals, doing all these things. And it was affecting my life pretty heavily. At multiple points, I, I got in trouble with the law. I had to go away for a while because that lump of salt was making this water undrinkable. But now over many, many years, I've made lots and lots and lots of wholesome decisions. That same lump of salt wouldn't have the same impact to my life today as it would have when I was at that age. So if you've done things in the past that were unwholesome and you're just continually making more and more and more wholesome decisions, you're making this cup of water grow to a, a pot of water, to a bucket of water, to a big trough of water, to a swimming pool of water, to eventually a whole river of water of good wholesome decisions. So even if you kind of make unwholesome decisions here and there and this lump of salt falls into your water, it's still drinkable. And it's not like something's just going to come out of the blue and clobber you on the head just because of something you did, for example, in my case, 25, 30 years ago. So it's important to understand that. And this way it can help you to release any fears of things that you've done in the past. I've even talked with students before that have been soldiers in the US military, for example, and they actually killed people as part of their military service 10, 15, 20 years ago. And they have similar concerns because they know they've killed human beings in the line of, of duty. Because even though their country sponsored the killing, it's still killing and it still affects them. And one of the ways that killing actually affects us is what it does to the mind. We start feeling guilty. We start feeling shameful. We start feeling fearful. This is part of the gamma coming back to the mind when we're actually involved in killing. So when I talked to this student and I asked him how he felt, he said, of course, he still has some guilt. He has some shame around it. And now he's actually a police officer and he has about five more years before he finishes that job. And one of the things I mentioned to him is, well, you're past the experiences of the killing. You know, he's no longer in harm's way. He was in Iraq in the Iraq war. He's past that. So he didn't get killed in the Iraq war. So therefore, he's past that part of his gamma. He just has to eliminate this guilt and shame and the fear from 
that killing. And then also he has to make very wise decisions for the next five years in his police duties to hopefully that he doesn't get killed in the line of duty as a police officer. And as long as he gets past that, then he's kind of like almost in the clear if he can resolve the guilt and the shame and the fear in the mind. So this is how killing actually produces unwholesome gamma, not only just that we can actually be killed as a result of killing other people, but it produces unwholesome gamma in the guilt and shame and fear. And that's probably where you are right now. You just need to release that and get rid of that, that no one's just going to pop out of the blue and just kill you because you've happened to kill some animals in the past. I have a question from Leslie on YouTube. My fear is going to my son's graveside because I'm afraid that I'll go back to all of the pain I experienced when he left. Okay, I guess the question is, how do I get over this? Is kind of like the, the question. So you're afraid of the painful feelings that you might experience. And truth be told is, yeah, there are some painful feelings there and, and you're probably going to need to experience those before you can feel comfortable to go visit his gravesite. And essentially, that's one of the reasons I feel that gravesites even exist, because we have some unresolved feelings in the mind and gravesites are a way for us to go there and process those. Here in Thailand, they cremate and they have the ashes and some families who have nothing unresolved, they'll just spread the ashes and the, the person is gone, no big deal. Other families will kind of hold on to them. Other families will put the ashes at the temple and so forth. But this gravesite of your son is actually a perfect opportunity for you to go there and process the thoughts and feelings that you have. I know that I've had loved ones pass away as well. And each time I visited the grave, it became a little bit easier and a little bit easier. And I'm sure losing a child is very challenging because the mind expects, right? That's the craving. The mind expects that you're going to die before your children. It would have never thought that your child would have died before you. And this is the a significant amount of impermanence that has shaken up the mind. And I think going to the gravesite over repeated visits can be very helpful and very healthy for you. Where you go to the gravesite, you talk to your son, any unresolved feelings that you have, any conversations that you feel like you need to have, go there and have those conversations. Get it all out. Don't hold on to it. If you avoid going there and you just hold on to these feelings, that's going to keep it bottled up. The craving is going to hold on in your mind and you're going to just continue to have these feelings hold on longer and longer and longer. So by actually visiting the gravesite, having conversations with your son over multiple visits can be very healthy for you to let it go. And then not only at the gravesite, but even if you're in the car and you just feel like talking to your son, talk to him, let it go. Don't hold on. Even though your son is no longer physically here in a physical body, when you talk, you're talking to your son and just let it go. No reason to hold on to these thoughts and feelings and emotions that you have. Tell your son that it's painful that he's died. Tell him how hard it is for you. Tell him that you're struggling. Tell him that you would like to feel better. Tell him that you need to let these painful feelings go so that you can feel more peaceful and more calm. 
have those conversations with them as if he's right there with you at that particular moment. And that can be very, very healing for you. And just do that over multiple times and it'll just get easier and easier and better and better. It's going to take time, lots of time. But that's one of the ways to let it go is by getting it out. Don't hold on to it. Okay, we have a question on Zoom. Moving topics now. Now, forgive me, I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, so I'll just ask the question. What should we know about meditation? Do we have some rules to follow, please? Well, nothing that I share is a rule. Rules are not going to end up leading you towards enlightenment. What I have is I have guidance, just like the Buddha. I have guidance that I can share with you. And then if you learn and practice with this guidance through your good, wholesome decisions and good choices, you can make choices that will lead closer and closer to enlightenment. Okay, so they're, they're not rules, but guidance. The best thing for you to do is to get this book. You can download it for free, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. In chapter 11 of this book, you will learn about meditation. And the link should be, if you're on Facebook, it should be in the comment section of this live stream. And you should see the free book link and you can download it. Read chapter 11. And at the end of chapter 11, there are videos, there's podcasts, there's a quiz to help deepen your learning. And if you learn with those materials and then you have additional questions, come into the Facebook group, Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, and ask your questions. Because meditation is a really big topic that takes a lot of time to, to teach. In order to attain enlightenment, you need to have extensive meditation training. So the first part of that is reading chapter 11, listening to the podcast, watching the videos, taking the quiz. And then on Wednesdays on this same channel at nine o'clock Thai time or whatever time that is your local time, you know, nine o'clock Wednesday, 9 p.m., we will do breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and chanting to help develop your meditation practice. But I would like you to investigate those teachings that I'm already sharing through those resources, the book, YouTube, podcasts, and quizzes, before I go into sharing anything more with you because that content's already there for you. And then you can use the Facebook group and our other online sessions to get help and guidance and clarification on additional questions. Okay, we have no more questions. Okay, since we have no more questions, I would like to just encourage you all to take inventory of whatever fears that you're having, whatever is in the mind that the mind is fearful of. And some of these fears, you may be consciously aware of them and you'll know what those are. Others you may not even realize it until it actually crops up. But whenever you recognize fears, either consciously or it comes up in the heat of the moment, recognize that as a fear, make inventory of it that it's a fear, and start making active decisions and plotting a course to gradually eliminate this fear by replacing those conditioned feelings, those conditioned thoughts and ideas that's causing the fear with good, wholesome experiences where you can eliminate the fear. 
Don't avoid these fears anymore. Take inventory of them, recognize that they're there, and take active steps to eliminate these fears by replacing it with good experiences. This is the way that I know that will eliminate these fears from the mind and recognize that it's not going to be just one time of turning off the lights and being in the dark. It's going to take multiple experiences for you to do this, to gradually train the mind away from these fears. But the more and more that you do it, addressing the smaller fears first and then the bigger fears, you can apply those same lessons from the smaller fears to the bigger fears and you can see how the mind can release this conditioning and you can get to more of a peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. And this is what you need in order to get to enlightenment is to eliminate fear. Okay. So between now and the next time we talk, work on that, continue to develop your meditation practice. If you haven't read chapter 18 in the book yet, be sure to read chapter 18 and keep meditating each day. On Wednesday, we are going to have another open session of questions and then also go into perhaps some chanting and meditation, which is Wednesday at nine o'clock Thai time. And then next Sunday is chapter 19. We're going to talk about God and free will and how God plays into all of these various teachings or not, right? So enjoy the next few days until we see each other next. If you have questions on anything we talked about here or anything that comes up during the week, post those into the Facebook group. And then be sure to continue to check out the YouTube channel, the podcast, the quizzes, and all the other resources that we have to help you on this path to enlightenment. So until next time, enjoy, and we'll see you then. Sawadee Be well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.